Well, again, good morning, church. It is so good to gather on this Easter Sunday. We are glad that you're here. And, uh, and again, maybe this is a, a totally foreign context for you with people lifting their hands, lifting their voices uh, to God. And uh, we just, we're just glad that you're here. We're glad that you're, you're peering in. Maybe for some of you, this is a service that you come to because it's uh, tradition or it's routine. And again, we're just, we're just thankful here. And, and most of all, we hope that you see Jesus. We hope that you see who he is clearly, not, uh, not again, a church, not, not, not a religion, but Jesus, a, a person, and that's who we want to vividly uh, put on display. You know, you kind of have to cut through some of the pastels, right? And, and you got to see what's really going on, because you're like, Kyle, you got up there, you said Christ is risen, and everybody shouted back, he's risen indeed. And so, listen, I get the nature of this day, that there's a lot of tradition around it, there's a lot of uh, different things that happen, but more than anything, I want you to see, see Jesus. And so the place that we see Jesus most vividly is in his word. And so if you have your Bibles, oh, we're going to go to scripture. Here at the Parks Church, we, we, we love the word of God. And so uh, turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. And so what we've been doing over the last 40-some weeks is we've been making our way through First and Second Samuel, but here on Easter, we're going to look at the resurrection specifically. And uh, you, if you know your Bible, you may say, wait a minute, Kyle, uh, John 21 doesn't talk about the resurrection. You're right, right? You a bunch of Bible scholars in here. Um, John 20 does. And so if you have your Bible, um, it won't be on the screen, but you can look at John 20, and that's the story of the resurrection. That's the story where the women who show up to the tomb, right, the, the, the first ones to identify that the tomb was empty was a group of, of women. And that's where the angel would say, why are you looking for the living among the dead. And the women take the message and Jesus continues to show up to his disciples and, and other people. And I love what one scholar says about the resurrection and the early followers of Jesus. He says, Christianity didn't begin with people who just simply believed something. It didn't believe with simply believing that the tomb was empty. Christianity began with a people who saw something. A group of women who saw that the tomb was empty. A group of disciples, John 20 tells us, that Jesus actually in bodily resurrection form after the resurrection shows up to. You remember the guy named Doubting Thomas, one of the disciples? And he's like, let me see, let me see proof. And Jesus goes, I got proof. And you see the nail scars in his wrists. And then John 20, interestingly, ends like this. Listen to this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, like something they saw which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's how John chapter 20 ends. That's the last verse. Doesn't that sound like a conclusion to a book? Like, hey, Jesus did a lot more and showed up to a lot more people. However, they're not contained in this book, but they're, they're written down and they were told about so that you would believe in Jesus. But I didn't have you flip to John 20, did I? I had you flip to John chapter 21 because this is the final chapter in John where Jesus still on earth after the resurrection. This is where I want us to sit for just a moment this morning where I truly believe that the resurrection of Jesus Christ meets real life. And for some of you, you come in here, again, maybe out of nostalgia, maybe out of tradition, or for whatever reason you're here, I believe that the Lord has sovereignly placed you here. You come for whatever reason 
But one of the things maybe you've discovered as you've attended Easter services or talked about Easter is that it's just kind of this cultural thing. It's kind of this thing that we just do, and you're like, I don't even know how this empty tomb really intersects with my life. I'm about to tell you a story from John chapter 21 about how it intersects with all of our lives. And so let's set the scene here and let the scriptures do that in John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples, this is verse 1, by the Sea of Tiberias, which is the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way to Simon Peter, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the son of Zebedee, and two other disciples, and, and, and two other of his disciples were together. How would you like to be just tacked on, like two other disciples? Like, don't even get listed in names, just like those two guys. Um, maybe John forgot, I don't know. Verse three, Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, the other disciples, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. So Jesus has actually already appeared to these same disciples prior to this moment. But here in this moment, after Jesus has appeared to them, Peter and the other disciples, they head back home. The Sea of Galilee was the region that they were in. If you remember, Jesus, where he was crucified, would have been closer in the area of, of Jerusalem. And so they're in a totally different region now. And Peter and the disciples go back to the Sea of Galilee, and they're like, what do we do now? What shall we do now? Like, we've seen Jesus resurrected. We've seen that he's living what do we do now? And what do the disciples, Peter particularly, he's in charge here, right? He's the lead disciple. What does he say? He says to them, which some of you are like, this is a really good idea, Peter, right? I'm going fishing. <laughs> I'm going fishing. And the other disciples say, well, Peter, we don't know what else to do either. We're going to follow you. And so they go fishing as well with Peter, okay? However, the Bible is very clear here to say how they did it fishing. And remember, Peter is a professional fisherman, at the end of verse three. But that night, they caught how many fish? Zero. Nothing. And so these guys go, what are we gonna do after the resurrection? We've seen Jesus. We go back home. We are not sure what to do. Let's go back to what we know. Let's go back to what we know. Now, let me tell you, that's not always an issue, right? It's not always a problem to, to go back to what you know and do what you did prior However, in this case, I think the Bible is making a point here to go, they went back to what they knew, and what they knew proved to produce nothing. Absolutely nothing. It didn't result in any fish. Now, let me tell you, this is our human nature. Our instinct is to go back to what we know, especially in times of confusion, times of loss, times where we're disoriented, but how many of you know going back to the old way of life oftentimes is not the best idea, is it? And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. In times of confusion or loss or failure, maybe you head back to that detrimental relationship or that pattern of behavior. Maybe it's that place of escape. And I think that is what John chapter 21 in these first three verses is pointing for this group of disciples. They don't know what to do. And so we'll go back to what we know. And then verse four. 
Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Okay, so now Jesus is in this, this area. And Jesus said to them, them not knowing, children, do you have any fish? Now, uh, children, that's, that, that's a, that's a uh, in, in the Greek, that's, that's more of a term of endearment. He's not like calling them kiddos. He's not like clowning them, okay? He's calling them like friends. He says, hey, friends, do you have any fish? Now, I don't care what type of fisherman you are in this place. Like, it's annoying when, any, when you're fishing and anyone asks you, have you caught anything? Right? Like, I, I've fished a few times in my life and never has anyone ever asked me, have I caught anything when I'm reeling one in, you know? It's always in that moment where you're throwing it out again and you're reeling it. And some guy who's got, just got like a full, you know, just, he's like, you caught anything, you know, like me? And so imagine this, this is a professional fisherman with his friends and this guy from the seashore who they don't know goes, hey friends, any fish in those nets? And you can see it in the text. They answer, I think sarcastically, no. And they're honest at least. And what does Jesus say to them? Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Pause right here. Is this bringing up, I, I, I proved earlier, you guys know your Bible. Does this bring up any other scene? It, it should, and if you don't know it, I'm going to tell you here in a second. John 21 resets three specific scenes that we've already read in our Gospels. And this is the first one. Jesus brings them back to the first conversation he actually ever has with Peter and the disciples. This is in Luke chapter 5. Jesus, once again, is on the seashore, but they, they, they don't know who Jesus is at this point other than he's a rabbi. And Peter's out there doing what he does. He's a professional fisherman. And again, Jesus asks the same question. You got any fish? And they're like, come on, this guy's killing us. Like, he says, throw your nets deeper. You remember that scene? And so they're like, all right. They throw their nets deeper, and what happens? <laughs> all these fish, right? And it says that it tears the net, and they're bringing their in, them in, and they're like, what in the world is happening? Who is that who just commanded that? But Peter actually knows that something divine is taking place all the way back in, the, in, in, in Luke's fifth chapter. And look at this in verse 8. I think we have it there. Luke chapter 5, verse 8. Look at this. Verse 8. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So that's Peter's response in the first scene. And Jesus here in John chapter one is resetting that same scene for Peter. But they don't know it's Jesus. And so the disciples, for whatever reason, and these professional fishermen, look at it in verse six. It says, so they cast it on the right side of the boat. And I just wonder if they're thinking like, you don't think we've tried the right side of the boat all night? And so they, for whatever reason, they try it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. You see Luke chapter five playing out again. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, by the way. John just going, hey, <laughs> me. Therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. Good eye, John. When Simon Peter heard that, it was the Lord. Look at the difference between Luke, Luke chapter 5 
to John chapter 21. It says that he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea, not to drown himself, okay? But to get to Jesus as fast as he possibly could because he recognized that is the one he's looking for. You see the difference between Luke 5 where he approaches Jesus and he goes, listen, I can't be around you. And now after Peter spending three years of walking with Jesus, being with him, he hears that it's the Lord on the seashore and he's like, I'll do whatever it takes to get to him. And he swims to the seashore. Now I think the boat would have been faster, but Peter decides to swim. Resetting the scene. Resetting these responses, Peter's first response in Luke 5 and Peter's response in John 21. But there's two more scenes reset. And you look in verse, verse number nine. And when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went, went aboard and hauled in a net ashore full of large, a hundred, full of large fish, 153 of them. Now, some of you, um, you've heard sermons around that idea of 153 fish. How many of you ever heard something around like the significance of these numbers and this and that? You know, that there are 153 nations at that point, and they're all drug in and all these things. Uh, I, I tend to land where D.A. Carson says that the, the, the meaning of 153 fish is this. There were 153 fish in the net. Okay? So let's not, let's not put Jesus gymnastics on this too much, all right? And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I love, this is the resurrected Messiah. And he invites his disciples on shore and says, hey, let's have breakfast together. That's a very different view than some of you have of Jesus. Jesus is inviting them in to essentially have a meal. Now, none of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? Because they knew it was the Lord, verse 12. And Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them. And so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So this is in fact the third time that the disciples had seen him and he's inviting them to the seashore to have breakfast with him. But the interesting thing, the scene that's being reset in this is around verse nine, around the charcoal fire. That's an interesting note by John that you give the specific kind or type of fire. Any of y'all guys cook with charcoal around here? Yeah, okay, yeah, you're the purists, all right? We'll have barbecue together, okay? Right, you cook with charcoal. A charcoal has a very distinct smell, doesn't it? So Peter, seeing this fire, this charcoal fire, coming back and coming to it, let me tell you, he's reminded of another moment around a charcoal fire. There's only one other place in all of Scripture where charcoal fire is used, and it's used in John chapter 18. Look at it here. In John chapter 18, it says, Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. So here's the scene. Do you remember what's going on also in John chapter 18? Jesus is being tried. He's being beaten. He's just been taken away. And he's there, and Peter is in Aisha. I love uh, the Dutch artist, uh, Karl Bloch. He has this painting and this picture for the, you visual learners of this scene of what's going on. And this is Peter with the roosters around him and Jesus in the backdrop. 
This is the scene of John chapter 18 around a charcoal fire. And do you remember what happens around that charcoal fire with Peter? This servant girl and these officers, they go, wait a minute. Aren't you that Galilean looking at Peter? Aren't you the guy that, 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 that runs around with Jesus? Aren't you one of his disciples? And you know the story here. Three times Peter goes, no, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. And on the third time, actually the Bible says that he cursed. And then Jesus, the fulfillment of Jesus and what he said to Peter hits him. Resetting the scene. Jesus is resetting that scene around a charcoal fire with breakfast being cooked to serve Peter. I mean, do you remember Peter before this scene? Peter, also the mouth, the voice box of the disciples. Matthew 26 tells us what Peter says at the Last Supper when Jesus says, listen, you're all gonna leave me. You're all going to deny me. Peter says, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I will never. Three very dangerous words rolling out of the mouth of Peter or rolling out of our mouths as well. I'd never do that. I'd never fall like that. I'd never stoop that low. You see, but Peter did fail. He did fall away. He denied Jesus in his most vulnerable moment. But here is the resurrected Jesus, now with Peter, resetting the scene around a charcoal fire. And Jesus has a question, the same question he asks three times to Peter. Just as there were three denials, Jesus has three questions. And the first one is the same as the second, the same as the third. Verses 15 through 22. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, you see, I think Jesus actually just lets lets the scene set for Peter. Let's him sit in the smell of the charcoal fire, the visual of it, Like, I can imagine in Peter's heart him going, oh man, do we have to do this? Do we really have to go down this route again? Like, come on. And Jesus is going, yes, we do. We do, Peter, because I'm actually after your heart. I care about your heart, I care about who you are more than your comfort. Peter going, maybe it's like some of you, hey, listen, failures and all those things, can't we just kind of sweep those under the rug? And then Jesus confronts Peter here in verse 15 with these beautiful questions. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Peter's moment of weakness getting reversed around a charcoal fire. But there's something interesting that happens the third time Jesus asks the question, do you love me? Look at it in verse 17. And Jesus said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter's already told him, Jesus, I love you. 
Do you love me? I love you, Jesus. And Jesus is going, one more time, Peter. Do you love me? And it says that Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, this is Peter's words, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Peter's going, listen, I see what you're doing here. I know what you're doing. Maybe even Peter thinking at this moment, Jesus doesn't know that he actually denied him. But it hits Peter in this moment, the third question going, oh, you do know. You actually called it and said that I would deny you as the rooster crows announcing that denial. You know everything. But Peter looks back at Jesus with such faith and goes, if you know everything, then you also know this, Jesus, that I love you. And Peter there, knowing all of his mess ups, knowing all of his failures, knowing all the ways in which he had denied Jesus, both in public and in secret, he still lays before Jesus his honest, faith-filled, I love you. And Jesus, in this resetting of the scene, looks at Peter and says, here's what I want you to do. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Peter, you want to know what to do? You've just professed your love for me. Now you want to know what to do? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to feed others as I have just fed you here on the seashore, as I have just filled your belly, disciples, no work of your own. As I have just fed you, here's what I want you to do. Feed others. And then the final resetting scene in verse 19. Jesus says these all famous words to Peter. Follow me. Follow me. Peter, do you love me? I love you. Peter, do you love me? I love you. Peter, do you love me? And he goes, Father, you know I love you. Follow me then. What scene is this resetting, Kyle? This is resetting the great invitation that happened in Mark chapter 1. That same scene where Peter is fishing once again. Guess what the invitation from Jesus was to Peter in that moment? The same one you see here in John chapter 21. Listen, this is the guy who failed and messed up repeatedly. This is a guy who Jesus in his most vulnerable moment goes, I don't know that guy. This is a guy who, who, who opens his mouth and goes, I would never, but then literally hours later actually does it. Listen, this is where the resurrection meets real life because we can all relate to that. We can all relate to messing up. We can all relate to failing God in one way or another or failing someone else, right? And here we see the restorative power of Jesus on display to look at Peter, the failure who has been redeemed by his faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus still looks at him and goes, listen, I know you love me. You know that I love you. Follow me. Follow me. You see, I don't know about you, but this kind of passage gives me a lot of hope. Um, it's Masters weekend, right? Masters tournament. I like to play. Anybody? Golf. It's a game of golf. Um, um, there, the, these won't happen in the Masters, but there's something I love in the game of golf. Uh, it's called a mulligan. Okay? Any fans of mulligans out there? Um, 
If you don't know what a mulligan is, it is uh, simply this idea that after a really bad shot, um, you get to drop a ball in the same place and uh, take another swing, hit another ball from the exact same spot. Um, Some of you, you view this scene in John 21. Maybe you even view your attendance in an Easter service like this, like a mulligan. Like Jesus is giving Peter another chance, a do-over. Here's the problem with that. The problem with that, just like in my golf game, when I drop another ball and hit a mulligan, chances are nearly 100% I'm going to hit it back in the water or snap hook it into the woods again, right? You fail again. You mess up. So hear me very clearly this morning from God's word. Jesus is not offering Peter or us a mulligan, a do-over, a second chance to finally get it right, Peter. No, Jesus is offering us a new life. Something only that he can give. A whole new way of living, a whole new way of being and seeing things and people around us. You see, the gospel of John, this is why I love the gospel of John, the gospel of John will not end without Peter being brought back in and sent back out. Because the gospel is the good news. It's the good news about Jesus Christ and his salvation for failures, for mess-ups, for people who have fallen on their journey and how he is constantly inviting us and bringing us back in with the same charge and invitation. Do you love me? You know that I do. Follow me. Follow me. You see, Peter has been ruined by his life with Jesus over the last three years, in the best of ways. He's seen too much to ever be satisfied with his old life on a fishing boat, right? And there's nothing wrong with fishing. There's nothing wrong with the ordinary. But John is going, listen, you can't go back to the old once you have seen the new life in Jesus Christ. However, Peter has found himself in a familiar scene. Maybe like many of you, find yourself this morning too discouraged, too discouraged by your own failures to keep going forward with God. And I want to remind you this morning of the grace and the invitation of Jesus to every single person in this room. You see, many of us find ourselves there. We know that God loves us, but we're still trying to prove ourselves to God. That is not the gospel. That's religion. Religion tells you you're not good enough, so work your hardest to fix that. Or the second lie of religion, I guess, could be this, is you are good enough. You have done enough good. You have, you, you have done this, and so God should look down and simply be pleased with who you are. But the gospel says this, the bad news is true. You're not good enough. None of us are. We're all separated from God based on our doing. But here's the good news. Jesus is running after you with his grace and his mercy and his goodness for you. And that in him, you can find the life you're actually looking for. 
This Savior who invites you in just as he invited those disciples in to that breakfast table on the shore to rest in him. And Jesus is showing Peter that the basis of his acceptance is not based on his performance. Rather, Peter's acceptance is based on Jesus' finished work upon the cross, punctuated by an empty tomb that we celebrate this morning. And so let me close in this way. For some of you, it's not your failures that are keeping you from Jesus. Maybe some, that's true. And this morning, you're seeing Jesus come to a disciple who had undoubtedly failed him, undoubtedly denied him. But for some of you, that's not where you're at. It's not your failures that are keeping you from Jesus. It's actually your self-sufficiency. It's that you've built your entire identity on being sufficient, self-made, hardworking, striving. And listen, there's nothing wrong with hard work. There's nothing wrong with, with doing things well. There's nothing wrong with putting your hands to the plow. The only thing wrong with that is that it can't save you. That your self-sufficiency, if that's what you cling to for salvation, will leave you in the same place with the angel going, why are you looking for the living among the dead? You're not sufficient. You're insufficient to save yourself. And so I'm convinced that we have an adversary of our souls. Someone who wants to steal, to rob. And the way he's going to do that this morning is two ways particularly. He's going to try to get you to go back to the old way of doing things. And maybe that looks like religion. Maybe that looks like just striving harder, working harder, applying that versus applying the gospel. Or he's going to work like this. He's going to convince you that what you need to do is just give up. And not give up and turn to Christ, but give up and turn to anything and everything else. You see, giving up, surrender, is the right way. But it's what are you surrendering to? Should I say it this way? Who are you surrendering to? You remember the question that we started uh, this morning with? Remember the one the disciples were asking at the beginning of John 21? What was it? What should we do? What should we do now? Um, Peter actually preaches the first Christian sermon ever in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches this sermon. The same Peter, right? Peter who denied the failure. Listen, read the rest of John 21. Peter actually fails again. It just proved my point too much, so I didn't even go there, okay? Like, he's actually like, what about this guy, right? And Jesus is like, don't worry about him, okay? But Peter, he preaches the first Christian sermon in Acts chapter 2, and, and I'm only going to give you part of it, but check this out. See if this doesn't come full circle. Let all the house, this is Peter preaching, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he's going, listen, the resurrected Messiah, here's, here's who he was. He was the one whom you crucified. He is God. Verse 37. Now when they, the whole crowd heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? 
What do you do when the resurrection of Jesus Christ meets you in real life? What do you do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ when it meets you in your failures, when it meets you in your insufficiencies, when it meets you in your shortcomings, when it meets you in your pride and your self-sufficiency? What do we do? Let me tell you, this time, Peter's got an answer. Here's what it is. And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And who's this for? Next verse. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are, where? Far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Make no mistake about it, the Lord is calling to himself this morning those who are far off in this room and in churches proclaiming the gospel around the world on this Easter Sunday. Christian, just like Peter, the Lord is still calling you. He's going, do you love me? You know I do. Then follow me. For some of you, the Lord is going, do you love me? And you're going, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure. What should I do? Here's what you should do. Submit to Jesus. Submit to his call. Submit to him drawing you to himself because listen, that's where you'll actually find life. That's where you'll actually find the peace that you and I have been searching for. Listen, you've tried everything else. You, you, you've sought all of these other avenues and where has that gotten you? Still being thirsty. What do we do? What shall we do? Repent and believe. What does the empty tomb call us to? Repent and believe in Jesus. You who are far off, come to Christ. You who think you're near, but not quite there, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning. And so I want you to bow your heads with me. Um, I want us to take just a moment here. A moment to sit before the Lord. It's like the moment where the disciples are with him around that charcoal fire on the seashore. Allowing even just the presence of Jesus, the presence of his Holy Spirit to speak to us, to minister to us to convict us. And some of you are probably thinking like Peter, oh man, do we really have to go here? Listen, Jesus, Jesus loves you enough to make you uncomfortable. He's after your heart and your life so much. He loves you so much that he is willing to do anything to get your heart. Some of you, like, we find ourselves, you find yourself wavering back and forth. And Jesus is looking at you this morning going, follow me. Follow me. I'm your sufficiency. I'm your salvation.
Jesus wants to save this morning. Jesus wants to move uniquely. He wants to call you out of your self-sufficiency. He wants to free you from that guilt and shame of those failures and give you himself. Not a different code of ethics. <laughs> he wants to give you himself. And for some of you, you have no idea what that means. <laughs> and that's great. It's gonna be a journey and a life of faith like you can't even imagine. The Bible says to receive Christ, here's what we, we do is we, we put our faith in him, we confess our need and our insufficiency and trust Christ's all sufficiency for us. And the Bible says when you pray that, the Lord gives you a new heart. sit here in your presence. Father, I pray however you are quickening hearts, Lord, I pray that they would respond in faithful obedience. Father, for the Christian, for those who follow you, Jesus, maybe ones who are hung up in past failures and guilt and shame, maybe they have returned back to the old life, but they know that will never satisfy for those Christians who are not walking in the reality of their new life, Lord, I pray this morning by faith they would wake up and they would walk in the newness of life given to us in Christ Jesus this morning. And Father, I pray this morning for those who by faith will receive your son Jesus for the first time, for the forgiveness of their sins. God, I pray even for how we will end this service with our ministers and our, our prayer team down front. Lord, I pray that by faith, they would come have a conversation with us. God, they would have a conversation with someone that brought them. They would begin to ask questions about who Jesus really is. That is this free gift? Is the gospel really good news? And Lord, I pray even next week as we baptize, there would be many more who would join. Father, move, I pray. Save. Do what only you can do. Free us, rid us from our shame and our guilt. God, may we look at the empty tomb and we see victory that was applied to us. Lord, we love you. We love you, as Peter confessed, because of your great love toward us.